0: Okay, so uh, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed. So like uh, preschool through fifth grade and then um, youth group, middle school, high school. If you guys wanna go out, I think it's, it's Don Jay Day today for the youth group um, or you can see, yeah, they heard that now they're gonna go. So, cause the option was stay in here. But uh, anyway. So, hey, can I just say I am super glad to uh, to be here this morning. Uh, I'm sure this never happens to anybody, but you ever just have one of those weeks when you're just glad you made it to Sunday and you get to be at church again? So there's something so uh, refreshing about being with God's people and the, just the consistency of God's word in our lives. and. Uh, no matter what it is that's going on, uh, we have that, we have the consistency of being in the Word each morning, whether you're reading through a different program or doing dwell with us, but um, just so important in each of our lives. So I'm super excited about our text today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you probably want one. You can raise your hand and we'll bring you one. You can use a Bible on your phone. You can use any Bible you want to use. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 again uh, this morning. And uh, let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, his word uh, as we turn to it today. So, Father, we thank you so much for today. And as we said, Lord, we just thank you for uh, this church family, Lord, and just the opportunity to be together, Lord, in the midst of what for so many, Lord, uh, is just uh, such busy times, Lord, busy time of the year, Lord, busy times, busy seasons of life. And yet we know, Lord, that in the midst of all of it, this opportunity just to come and to pause and to sit and just to have you still our hearts, Lord, and uh, just to be here at your feet and to be ministered to by you, Lord. And we pray for that ministry this morning, Lord, for that teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit as he speaks uh, your heart to our hearts. And so we pray uh, your blessing on the word this morning, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen, amen. So we are continuing, although we're continuing a little bit slowly (laughs) through Mark's kind of, uh, you know, what should be this fast-moving account of the the life and of the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to look this morning at just five verses, and yet... I hope that we're going to agree as we go through them that these are five very important verses. And they come right here at a very important point, of course, in, in Jesus' ministry. Uh, and I really believe, again, as I was studying this week, just that these, are, these verses are so important for us, uh, just as a church collectively. And I mean church like with a capital see, right, for the whole body of Christ, the body of Christ as a whole, and of course, you know, for each one of us as individual Christians um, within that, uh, and I also think it's especially important for our church here specifically where we live uh, kind of culturally in this, uh, in this area, because what we're going to see this morning is that these verses really portray Jesus in one of, um, I think, the most wonderful Uh, sort of names that he's given in the scriptures, and that is Jesus, friend of sinners. Um, And these verses are really gonna provide us with, I think, some important um, and some really insightful instruction as we try to really follow after that same beautiful example in what is really kind of a complex area for us to navigate. Now, just to catch us up quickly, we've watched Jesus as he's sort of begun the public Portion of his ministry up there in the Galilee. It's the second year really of his three-year ministry starting out after that first year which we said was the year of obscurity. Now we're moving into that second year or the year of popularity. We've seen his initial disciples called. We've seen all of these miracles and these healings that were performed. We've seen the, the coming of the kingdom being proclaimed, and we're watching as Jesus' popularity is really starting to skyrocket, right? It's just really rising there throughout the whole region, so much so that we remember that the religious leaders from down there south in Jerusalem, that they have come up to kind of check in and to really look at and just to find out what it is that Rabbi Jesus is all about. And when we left him last, we remember he was teaching there, kind of huddled up inside Peter's house with this capacity crowd bursting at the seams. And in the midst of it, of course, the roof then kind of ripped off by these four faithful friends as they then lowered their paralyzed friend down there just to get him to Jesus, right, to be touched by Jesus and of course we saw miraculously that he was right the man was made both completely whole both physically and spiritually right his body healed and his heart ultimately just set free as we we talked about the fact last week that Jesus really zeroed in he met that deepest need the deeper need that the man had of his sins being forgiven and we saw that in doing that, that certainly stymied the scribes and the Pharisees who were there in the room. And so now as we pick up next, so we'll be in verse 13 of chapter one and we read this, it says that then he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them. So here, of course, we're still there in the beautiful sort of seaside city of the city of Capernaum, up there in the Galilee, right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, or what we would call the Lake of Galilee, really. (laughs) And Peter leaves, uh, pardon me, Jesus leaves Peter's house, and then these multitudes suddenly find him again, right? And now we have all of these people and all of their problems, all of their infirmities, all of their needs just pressing in upon Jesus. They find him, and now they're following after him. And so many of them following after him, maybe for the wrong reasons, right? Not necessarily because they agree with what he's saying, but simply because they have a need and they want it filled. And yet, as we see again, as we've seen before, what does Jesus do with this multitude? He teaches them. And again, we're not going to go through it. We spent some time on it last week. But just that focus that Mark places on the priority that Jesus placed not simply on these miraculous healings, but really on the ministry first and foremost of the word of God, right? The proclamation and the explanation of the kingdom of God. Because, of course, Jesus knew that it was only the word of God that would ultimately address the deepest needs that these people had. And that was that, is, that issue, again, of the forgiveness of their sins. And so the very first thing that we see Jesus friend of sinners do, is Jesus teaches these multitudes of sinners, right? So now he's making his way kind of there along the shore. He's got the multitude close behind him, and they are hanging, right, surely on every single word. They're eager to see what he's going to say next or what he's going to do next. And what we're going to see is that the next lesson is a big object lesson for them. And it's a lesson that nobody ever would have expected. Look what it says in verse 14. It says that as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now, Jesus never ceases to amaze. And what he just did here would have been nothing short of absolutely amazing. It would have been even astounding. And this is one of those passages, or in Mark's case, just a verse, that we can just read right by and we really miss out on the heart of what's happening here. We miss out on the heart of the issue and we really miss out on the heart of the Lord. Because this verse records the calling of a man named Levi, who's known probably to most of us better by the name Matthew, exactly right. Oh, you knew it because you recognized him, right? <laughs> Matthew, right again, right off of his... Instagram, right? So Matthew very likely is the name that Jesus gave to Levi after his conversion. And this is the Matthew, of course, that Jesus calls here, the Matthew who's ultimately going to become one of the 12 disciples and then later one of the 12 apostles and then be used ultimately by the Holy Spirit to be the human author of the gospel according to Matthew, right? Matthew's very unique and very comprehensive account of the life of Jesus and yet at this point we see him here sitting at the tax office because Levi at this point was a tax collector and trust me there is so much that's just bound up in that description. In those days tax collectors were almost universally despised. And I suppose probably there's no time in history where tax collectors are not, you know, you know, okay, anyway. You know, if you're an IRS agent, you probably don't lead with that, right? At a, at a party, you probably tell people, you know, I, I work in fundraising you know, <laughs> for, for public projects or something <laughs> like that. And I know you guys probably know the answer to this, but do you know why it is that sharks will never attack an IRS agent? professional courtesy, right? They just, it'll take a minute, but you'll get it, right? Anyway, here's the point. Now, I know you guys are with me now, right? No one ever particularly is too excited about paying taxes, right? And tax collectors are not usually embraced as a rule. And yet, tax collectors in Israel in those days were especially despised and for good reasons. And not the least of which, again, maybe not unlike today, but they would tax just about anything and just about everything. So anything you owned, anything you sold, anything that moved, anything that lived, they actually had a poll tax established for every man who's between the ages of 14 and 65, every woman between the ages of 12 and 65, simply for the privilege of living, you had to pay a tax. There was income tax. If you were a farmer, it was 10%. If you were involved in the production of wine or oil, right, luxury items, 20% on your income duties charged, right, taxes on transportation of goods, for the selling of goods, for using the markets, for using the harbors, for using the roads. You were taxed not only on the cart that you were, that you would use to transport your goods, but there was a tax on each and every wheel on the cart and a tax on, based on how many animals it took to pull that cart, right? And so it goes on and on and on, right, you get the idea. And here's what's important to realize is that none of these taxes were Jewish taxes. None of those went to support the government of Israel at the time, those were all Roman taxes. And so they went straight back to fill up the coffers if you will, back in the treasuries of Rome because of course we know that Israel, like so many of the, the, so much of the ancient world at the time, they were simply a very small province in the very big Roman Empire. And Rome's method of collecting these taxes amongst these smaller provinces, it was a pretty interesting one, right? They would take a particular region within their, you know, with, that they had conquered, and they would look for a native in that province, and that they would then sell to that person the right to be the tax collector. And by virtue of buying that right as the tax collector, you were pretty much guaranteeing Rome that you would raise at least, you know, X amount of money, some set amount of money that you would deliver to Rome. But here was the incentive that anything you could extract from your fellow citizens over and above that amount. That was yours to keep. So that was all your income. You could hardly have developed a system that would have more readily produced the kind of corruption that was so widespread because the more dishonest you were, or really the more cold-blooded and ruthless you were against your fellow countrymen, the more money you made. And so this was something that in general attracted the world's worst kind of person, it became the kind of profession that was known for dishonesty, and it was hated universally. But for the Jews specifically, they looked at their countrymen who worked as tax collectors, they had an even stronger hatred because they looked at them as traitors who were assisting Rome in the oppression and in the occupation of Israel and her people, right? So for the Jew, it was more than a, just a moral or an ethical issue. They actually went a step further and they made it, we're gonna see, into a religious one. So even if you were a, an honest tax collector, you'd still be viewed and de- despised by your fellow citizens because you were taking advantage of your fellow countrymen at a vulnerable time within their history. They considered it treason. Right? It was unforgivable in the mind of a Jew. And they took tax collectors and they classed them with robbers and murderers and prostitutes. As we said, they were even barred from attending the synagogue on the basis that they had broken the Mosaic law. And here's the scripture they used. They used Leviticus 20. Where the Lord says, I will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. Because in the minds of the Jews, here was their argument, that in the very same way as a prostitute would throw away all of their dignity, all of their godly character for the sake of money, they said, so do the tax collectors like this man, Matthew. So he would have been a disgrace, not only to his family, but he was a disgrace to all Jews in general. And yet it was this man. This was the man who Jesus sees out of a multitude, right? He sees him, he singles him out, and he calls him to follow him and to be his disciple. Right, so Jesus, the friend of sinners, not only does he teach the multitude of sinners, but he calls out the worst sinners to follow him. And Jesus did it here. Notice this. This was not by accident. He did it right here in front of this entire multitude who was trailing after him, watching every single move he made. Can you even imagine what this multitude thought when Jesus pointed to Matthew, right? That's a whole message in and of itself. But for this morning, let's just consider what Matthew thought as Jesus called him. As Jesus called him right here while he is engaged in this despised activity, he's in this hated profession, imagine how this must have blown his mind. Right now, what, what we do know is that Mark tells us that Matthew He didn't flinch or falter, not in the slightest. And I love the way Mark sets up this. He paints this very compelling picture for us, just in the simplicity of how he... Matthew starts out sitting in the tax office. Jesus says, follow me. And what are the very next words without any hesitation? So he arose and followed him. He was sitting, he arose, and he left everything behind to follow Jesus. And this is really a case where he did leave everything behind. Because in many ways, Matthew left far more to follow Jesus than any of the other disciples. You think about Peter and James and John, and what were those guys? They were fishermen, right? They could have very easily, and they did, didn't they, ultimately go back to their fishing business. But it would have been absolutely impossible for Matthew to go back to tax collecting. Why? Well, because you can bet that that post was filled. I mean, that seat didn't even get cold before somebody else wanted and filled that position. Now, again, don't think in your minds that this was the very first time that Matthew had ever seen Jesus. Right? We know that his tax office was right there in Capernaum. And we've talked about the fact that everyone in Capernaum had heard of Jesus. Everyone there in that city had probably even heard Jesus. Right? They all knew about Jesus. And Matthew likely knew all about his teaching. He likely knew all about his miracles and this fame. Right? I mean, just the mention of the name Jesus, we see it's enough to just attract a crowd. And I believe that when Jesus here called Matthew, that for Matthew, this was the answer to a lifelong hunger in Matthew's heart. And here's why I believe that. Right here in our text, we see that Matthew's name at this point, his Jewish name, right, his given name was Levi. Now, the name Matthew is a beautiful one. It means gift of God. Right? It's a beautiful name with a beautiful meaning, but the name Levi is equally beautiful. It means united or joined, or sometimes it means joined in harmony. And the name Levi was a name that was deeply steeped in Jewish history. Of course, it was the name of one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was one of the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And so the name Levi, of course, is one of the names of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of you Bible students, you guys know the tribe of Levi was not just any old tribe, but the tribe of Levi was what? It was the priestly tribe of all Israel. The very first high priest of the nation of Israel, Moses' brother Aaron, he came from the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. And we remember as we went through, remember all the distribution of land in the book of Joshua, very specifically, we, we talked about the fact that God had set aside the entire tribe of Levi unto himself, right, that they were set aside for holy service, first in the tabernacle, then later in the temple. And so Matthew, with this original name of Levi, that name tells us very likely he was probably from a priestly family, from the tribe of Levi, and as a boy from a priestly family from the tribe of Levi, he would have been trained in his youth For the priesthood. So Matthew was very likely raised in a very religious home by godly parents who named him Levi in the hopes that one day he would become a priest and serve in the temple. That was the greatest desire of them for his life. And then you imagine he has now gone in the exact opposite direction of everything his parents had hoped for for him. And he's ended up in this dreaded, this despised, this shameful job as a tax collector. And I think that when we see something like that, we have to ask ourselves, how in the world did that happen? Right? Because things like that don't just happen, right? We, know, we don't know what, what might have happened, but we can only assume that something happened, right? Something happened there in Levi's life that caused him to turn completely from the priesthood, right? So let's, we look at Matthew's life, what do we know? Well, we know, of course, that as we read through Matthew's gospel account, he quotes from the Old Testament scriptures nearly 99 times, right? Depending on how you count it all up. So much more than any of the other gospel accounts, right? So in other words, we know that Matthew, he knew his Bible. He knew his Bible very, very well, and he had learned it somewhere, and it probably wasn't as a tax collector, right? We also know over and over again, what does Matthew say over and over again in his gospel account? He talks about the scriptures being fulfilled by Jesus. So in other words, Matthew not only was a man who knew the Bible, but he knew the implications of the Bible. He knows the themes of the Bible. He knows what these verses in the Bible speak of. He knows the implications concerning the coming Messiah, right? All of these things, we we see that these were probably given considerable thought by him. And what's really interesting to consider is this, is that Matthew in his account of the gospel, He uses the words hypocrisy and hypocrite in pointing out this incredible disconnect of all these Jewish religious leaders who were opposing Jesus. Matthew points out the the hypocrisy of these hypocrites, not just more than any other gospel, but even more than any other book of the Bible. And really, he points it out more than all of the rest of the New Testament put together, which is to say that this idea of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders was an issue that really seems like it was at the forefront of the mind of Matthew. And we put all of that together, and what that's done is it has led some Bible students to speculate, but I think in this case, this kind of sanctified speculation might probably be right on the mark. But many believe that perhaps when young Levi came from his home, right, either as a boy or more likely as a young man, to start to begin his service at the temple, and as he got there and started to see the hypocrisy and the greed and the covetousness of so many of the Jewish religious leaders at the time, that it simply caused him to shut down right, and to, to check out. And it was almost as if you can hear the conversation in his head, you know, if this life is all about power and hypocrisy and making and and stealing money from people like these priests are doing, I don't wanna be a hypocrite about it, right? I don't wanna do it sort of behind the mask of religion. If I'm gonna be a thief, I'm gonna be an honest thief and I'm gonna do it as a tax collector. And he did, and he did it for many years until one day, right? Until one day, and think about this, one day he is clear up in the north of Israel. He's here in the city of Capernaum. It is about as far away as you can get from the city of Jerusalem and still be in the city of Israel, I mean, in the nation of Israel. But it's way up here, up in this Galilee of the Gentiles, this is the place where he hears Jesus and he sees Jesus. And in, at this point in seeing Jesus, I believe that Levi saw in him everything that he knew God was like from the scriptures that he knew so well. And when he finally heard Jesus, he knew that he was finally hearing someone rightly divide the word of God and do it for no other reason than to honor God and to bless God and not simply to, you know, to get money or to to get power. And of course, as he watched the things that he was doing, what did he do? He recognized him as the Messiah based on all of those Old Testament scriptures that he had studied. And at this point, he starts to think to himself, you know what? That is someone who's worth living for. That is someone who's worth following. And at the same time, I'm sure he wrestled with the fact, you know, but what about this life that I have? What about this job that I have? What about this past that I have? But what Jesus did here in Matthew's life in this moment was he just knocked every single excuse for not giving his life to God. He knocked all of those excuses right out of his hands. Right, Every single excuse that Matthew had come up with over the years to continue to just live as this sort of self-willed tax collector, Jesus took all of those things away. And I am convinced that no one was happier to have that happen in their life than Levi was. And I think that that's one of the great lessons that we can take from Levi here. Because even in just a room this size, right, not to mention those who are joining us for at some point from someplace, but there may well be people here whose history includes something that's very similar to what perhaps Levi experienced where you were exposed to the corruption or to the hypocrisy of some religion. Maybe it was just the corruption and the hypocrisy of the Christian home, right, that you grew up in. And at some point for you, you said, you know what, I don't want anything to do with any of that. And I'm gonna run as far away as I can get from it all. I'm gonna go as far away as I possibly can. I'm gonna go way up north, right? And yet Jesus won't let you loose. He just won't let you alone in just bringing you back to realize that he is something entirely different. He is something wonderfully perfect that can't be represented by anything or anyone else. There are so many religious institutions out there or you know, they claim to represent God or they claim to represent Christianity or they even claim to represent Jesus and yet they are nothing like him. And one of the titles I think I love the most in the scriptures is in the book of Revelation where John describes Jesus two different times. The first time he calls him the faithful witness and the second time he calls him the faithful and true witness. And you notice that in both of those cases, it is singular. Because really, Jesus is the singular and the only true faithful witness of who God is and what God is like. And so, like Levi here, the Lord is calling each one of us today to become his followers and then to do a better job of being his followers maybe than other people did for us in our lives, right? To just simply keep our eyes on him and take our eyes off of all of the rest of it and just follow after him, realizing he is so entirely different than he is so often represented. And that's what Levi saw here. As every one of these excuses was taken away, every past issue was moved out of the way in his heart, and he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. And then he tries, as we see next, now he wants to introduce other people to Jesus. Look at verse 15. He says, Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. So what does Levi do next? Right? We don't know how much time went by, and yet it doesn't seem like it was very much. But he's so excited, I think, about this hunger that's been satisfied and this fulfillment of the scriptures that he sees in Jesus. Now he's left all and he's become one of his followers. Again, somewhere deep down in Levi's heart, I think that there was this kernel of a love for God that was never completely put out, even by his cynicism and his hurt. And now he wants every single one of his friends... Keep in mind, his only friends would have been other tax collectors, right? Other sinners, the worst of the worst and the outcast of the outcast. All of these people ostracized together by the culture. They can only find any kind of friendship amongst themselves. So really they would have had to develop this kind of a sub- Culture within the culture, but he wants every one of them to see Jesus and to see in Jesus just what he has seen in Jesus. And so, what does he do? He throws a dinner, right, or a lunch. Or he couldn't get these people to come to a Bible study, right? But they would probably come for a meal. So, he gets them all there in his house and then he invites Jesus to come and hang out with all of these sinners and wonder of wonder what happens. Jesus shows up. He shows up and he brings the rest of his disciples. So now what do we have in this room? We've got sinners who are now coming into direct contact with Jesus and they're all eating together and they're sharing fellowship with one another. And Mark tells us that many of these rejects of society... That they also do see in Jesus what Levi saw in Jesus. Look at the end of that verse. It says that there were many and they followed him. Right. So many of them, as a result of this contact, they also began to follow Jesus. Right. This couldn't possibly be going any better, right? So, of course, everybody is very happy with what's happening here. Right, look at the way people are changing and lives are getting saved, they're coming into contact with God, and they all lived right happily ever after. And the passage ends, and the music swells, and the fireworks go off, right? And the wouldn't that be great if that's what happened? And yet that's not at all how it ends, is it? Did you guys read ahead, even one verse? Okay, you did, right? In fact, this is sort of the point where the instruction sort of begins as it relates to this particular passage because there was one group there that was anything but happy with what happened here, right? Because it says in verse 16 that when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? So here are our good friends again Right, The scribes and the Pharisees. Now these are the same guys who had just come up from Jerusalem to try to find fault with Jesus. And apparently they have stuck around here in Capernaum long enough. Again, we don't know how much time there was between what happened at Peter's house and what's happening here now at Levi's house. But these guys have stuck, stuck around long enough to see all of this. And they don't like what is happening here not one bit. Now, the very name Pharisee, do you know what it means? It means separated one. Because they separated themselves from everything and anything that they thought was unholy. And they thought that everyone except themselves were separated from God and from the love of God, especially these wicked sinners and these tax collectors. And notice what these guys do. They don't go directly to Jesus, do they? What do they do? They go to the disciples, right? Kind of trying to work in like a side door. I mean, these guys are just weasels, right? And of course, the idea behind what it is that they're upset about, right, is that holy people who are really serious about God, right? If you are really serious about God, then you just do not hang around these kinds of people. You simply do not hang around with sinners. And this is what I think is so important for us to think about this morning. Because if we can be honest about it, this is still a very prevailing attitude amongst most religious people today. Right, and it's very likely that somewhere in in every one of our hearts as Christians, at least to some degree, that attitude is still there. And we need to be very careful to guard against it and really to ensure that that kind of thinking never really takes root in our life because it never had a place in Jesus' life or in his heart. Because look at what Mark says next that Jesus did and about why it was, right, that he was there with these sinful people. It says in verse 17 that when Jesus heard it, remember they haven't even asked him directly, right? He simply overheard it, right? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the fact of the matter is the Bible is very clear that there are no righteous people, right? Paul quotes from Psalm 14 in Romans chapter three. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So Jesus came to call everyone to repentance universally, but he comes specifically to call people to repentance who know that they're sinners, right? Who know that they are broken. And these people, these sinners, they knew that they were. And he was calling them to repentance, and they were coming. And Jesus' response, right, aside from all of the doctrinal discussion that we could have about that, but I think that Jesus' response here tells us something very practical for our own lives. Because, don't miss this, right, because in tying his presence at the gathering. In tying that directly to this subject of repentance, Jesus tells us that he was at that meal for a very specific purpose. That he was there in that place at that time with the intention of being redemptive through his presence. He was there to be a spiritual influence in the lives of these people by getting close enough to them to let them see how different his life was from their life. And then to also let them hear as he no doubt started to speak to them about sin and about salvation and about becoming one of his disciples. Because Jesus realized that in order to be able to do that, you have to get close enough to them for them to hear and for them to see. And then he uses this wonderful picture of a physician, they're treating a sick person. Because when a doctor goes into a sick room, right? They're not, they don't just go in there because they love sickness, right? They don't go in there because they love disease, but they enter into that room because they know that they have the potential to heal that Person, that patient, right, through their presence because they're there. And in the very same way, Jesus is saying that he attended this particular feast with these particular people, not because he loved the sickness of their sin or the sickness of their spiritual or moral condition, but because he loved them. And he knew that he had the potential to heal them by simply being there with them. Right, so Jesus, the friend of sinners, right, he teaches these multitudes of sinners, he calls the worst of sinners, and he sits with sinners to heal them. Because in the same way that the doctor has to get close enough to the patient to be able to make the diagnosis and then share the diagnosis and then to share the cure for the diagnosis, the Savior has to be close enough to these sinners to be able to share the diagnosis and the cure with them. That's why Jesus went to this particular feast. And that's why Mark is specific to tell us that he brought his disciples along so that they could see Jesus do this and they could see his heart toward these people. Where else would a good physician be except right there amongst those who are really sick? Right? Not in the doctor's lounge, right? You want him out with the patients. And where else would you hope to find a savior except right there around the sinners? And we think about the fact that Matthew could not have invited one single sinner to meet Jesus at that, right? He could have gone out and pulled the worst of the worst, right, the scum of Capernaum, and you would not find one single individual who was so bad that Jesus would be unwilling to meet them and to touch them and to save them. And neither can we, because that's the heart of God, right? Revealed to us in the word of God. And here's what I think is so super cool. Check this out when you get home. But Matthew's own account of this very same incident, right? He includes something extra that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees that Mark leaves out, right? And it's something so profound right from their own scriptures, that Jesus said to these Pharisees and scribes. In Matthew chapter nine, it says that when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So that part is exactly the same in Matthew as we just read in Mark. But then Jesus goes on, and he says this to these men, right? These experts in the Jewish scriptures. He said, but go learn What this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what Jesus is doing here, he quotes from Hosea chapter 6, and he's basically saying, look, you guys really need to figure this out. Figure out what this means because you have missed it entirely. And what he's teaching them from this passage is that in the eyes of God, right, to have mercy and to to extend mercy to sinners, it's more pleasing in his sight and it's more pleasing to his heart than any sacrifice that we could possibly offer to him apart from having that heart of mercy and that heart of compassion towards sinners. And I think that this speaks something that's so very, very important to us as Christians, especially here in this Bay Area, California kind of culture, because it's something that we all have to deal with. It's something that we all have to navigate through because we know, right, as good students of the Bible, we know that the word of God has called us to remain separated from the world, right? Paul quotes from Isaiah in 2nd Californians, I mean, sorry, 2nd Corinthians, sorry about that. I was... He says this, he says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. So clearly we are not to engage in the sin of the world. We're not to engage in the ways of the world. We're not to involve ourselves with the things that are unclean As the world is, right, there's a separation that's supposed to be maintained. And God has called us to that. He's called us to live this life of holiness. But what our passage today tells us is that Jesus' ideas concerning separation and holiness as it relates to these sinners and the Pharisees' ideas... Concerning separation and holiness regarding these same people, well, these were two entirely different attitudes. There were different attitudes altogether. And so often you'll you'll hear people say, and we've probably all said it ourselves rightly, but we say stuff like, you know, this world is just sick, right? We live in a in a sick world. And the fact of the matter is it's true, right? This world suffers from a terrible Sickness, right? All of the symptoms of that debilitating disease of sin. And Jesus, I think, is telling us this morning, and He's showing us that as much as it is a morally, sort of spiritually sick world that we live in, but that it's never going to get better if we just adopt the attitude of the Pharisees. And we somehow decide that the highest expression of our desire for holiness is to disengage from everyone who's sinful, right? To disengage from the world and as a church just to turn inward right? As the body of Christ in the community and all around the world to just cease to engage at all with culture. And we just sort of make this determination that everything's lost. And so the best thing that we can do as Christians is just build higher walls around ourselves between us and all of the sinful people out there around us. We are just simply not to do that. Because what happens when we do is we very quickly run the risk of rapidly just becoming marginalized and then becoming ignored and then being completely forgotten by the culture that's around us. And then we have no influence. Jesus shows us there is another way. There's a way of true holiness in whatever environment we're trying to navigate and still do it to the glory of God, just like he does it right here in this sinful place with these sinful people. He brought in this beautiful, redemptive, holy element into that meeting. But here's where it gets a little hard for us to understand is how do we maintain relationships, right? Or at least contact with people. Maybe it's people within our families or our friends or our coworkers, whoever it is. But how do we maintain contact with all of these people who are still so very steeped and entrenched in their sin, how do we establish an influence in their life without compromising our life? And one of the keys I think that's important for us to see as Christians, and we see it here with Jesus, and I think we see it with the disciples, is that to know that for us as Christians, there is no need for us to be uneasy, or uncomfortable, or afraid in any environment, even of sinners. There simply isn't. We don't get the sense here that Jesus was afraid to be there, or that the disciples were afraid to be there. And we don't need to be afraid either, no matter how messy the sinners are, no matter how addicted they are, no matter how godless they might be, Right, and I think it's important for us not to be afraid to engage with them or to be afraid just to meet them where they are because that's where we're going to find them. We're always gonna find sinners still right there sitting in their sin, right? We can't expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian would. We couldn't do it right before we were Christians and we can't put that kind of expectation on a non-Christian we as the church, we are not the sin police of the world. And whatever it is that people are going to do in these secular gatherings that we will sometimes find ourselves a part of, that's not a reflection on us. Whether it's the holiday work party that we have to go to or some other work event or those crazy family reunions, right? Or maybe it's even just Thanksgiving dinner. And maybe we know that all of these things, they're gonna get messy. We know there's gonna be people there who are gonna drink too much. There's gonna be people there who are gonna swear too much. But the point is, none of that is our problem, right? None of that is really our issue. Our issue as Christians is simply to say, Lord, where is it that you want me to be? And then to simply go in there and be a redemptive influence in that environment. Just simply go there and be a Christian in that place. It's not my responsibility to change everybody's mind. It's not my responsibility to change their lives. It is my responsibility for them to see a Christian in that environment. And just to see the beauty of a Christian life that's lived out there before their eyes, even in that place. And I really believe that when we can start to look at these different situations and approach them like that, it absolutely sets us free. Now, I have to say this, please don't throw all wisdom out the window, right? Wisdom would say, don't put yourself into a situation where you personally are likely to stumble in your faith or stumble into sin, especially if you're new in your faith, right? It, if you are just in the first days of your sobriety, then stay away from the frat parties, right? Stay away from the bars. If you're recovering from a, a heroin addiction, don't hang out in a drug, you get the point, right? And, and there, there are absolutely certain situations and certainly certain relationships that we are definitely called to leave behind as we're coming out of that darkness and starting now to walk in the light, but then as we start to mature in our faith, as we start to grow in our grounding and our understanding of the word, at that point, to be able to have perspective, to look at this big wide world of all of these people all of these sinners that don't know Jesus and don't know an opportunity to have a relationship and to really start to look at redeeming any time that we can possibly spend with them and to look at it as an opportunity to meet them where they are and to let them see the Lord in our lives and that we might then be able to share the gospel with them right where they are, still sitting there in their sin right, as we sit there in the sick room with the sinners, because that's exactly what's happening in this environment. Jesus went in as a redemptive influence and a presence in that place, and that's all that God ever asks us to do, right? So let's just be who we are as Christians, right, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Right as, as it says, receiving power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that we can what? Be witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth, right? That power to live for Christ and to be like Christ in any environment that he might put us in or open up for us to go into wherever we are because that in essence, that's what Christianity is all about. And I'll say this too, and you guys know this, right, living where we live, it is only a Holy Spirit-driven, Holy Spirit-empowered kind of Christianity, like we see described in the Bible, that is the only kind of Christianity that is up for this moment where we are in human history. Not merely just to survive this sickness, but to really be used by God to make the most of these opportunities that are always all around us, to be this redemptive force like Jesus was. Because here's what's gonna happen if we don't live lives with that as our goal. We are going to fall into the trap of the Pharisees, right? If we're not actively trying to advance, we're gonna retreat And we're going to fall into the same trap and we're going to start to establish this sort of a false separation with the world that looks nothing like what Jesus did and looks instead just like the legalism of the Pharisees. What starts to happen is we start to establish all these extra biblical kind of rules so that we can limit our exposure to sin, right? I don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do, right? Or, you know, we can't go to that restaurant and get a burger. They've got 60 different beers on tap. So how could we eat there? Right? We have to stay away from this kind of music. Or we have to stay away from these kinds of movies. Or we, we, we're supposed to dress like this, and we're not supposed to dress like that. And for heaven's sakes, don't get a tattoo. Right? But all of these things, these are the things that give the appearance of this sort of a, this ultimate expression that we are serious about our holiness, right? These are all the things that people do that really show that I'm serious about being separated from the world. When in fact, it is a confession of our own weakness, because you always have to artificially protect what you know is weak. Right here, the Pharisees. They are artificially protecting. They had developed this entire system of rules and regulations to artificially prop up their weak understanding of the scriptures and the weakness of their own faith that that produced. Remember last week we talked about Matthew 22, 20, where Jesus said to them that you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor what? The power of God. And still, so often in the church today, you have churches and you have leaders in the church. They start to establish these kind of real legalistic rules for the congregation because they're concerned about whether or not their people can go out and handle themselves in these kinds of difficult situations around all these sinners. And whenever you see that in a church, understand it's not an example of holiness, it's an indictment against the weakness of the church itself and of the leaders. Because again, legalism always protects what it knows it's weak, right? They're so worried about their people being corrupted by those bad people. They say, look, here's all the rules to keep you away from these bad people. But here's my question, who's gonna reach the bad people then? Right, if we're all staying. So I'm saying to you guys, go out and be with the bad people. Go find some bad people. I trust you guys. You guys have the Holy Spirit. So go find some bad people and love on those people. Because the the answer to all of this isn't to establish this kind of a separation But the solution is for us to grow so very deep in our relationship with the Lord and in our knowledge and our understanding of the word of God that we can then look and say, you know what, by the grace of God and by the power of his spirit that I know is working in me, that I think he could put me in any environment, even a difficult environment like this one, and I think that I could be a blessing to those people in that environment. I think that I could be there and that people would see my faith and that it would encourage them and it would prompt within them the desire to know more about this God that I serve. Can I just say this? You know, we talk all the time about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? And the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't given to us as Christians so that we can sit around and live content within the context of being kind of shut up within the four walls of our homes and our churches, right? And that maybe we'd have enough Holy Ghost power that we could run out to the store and get back quick enough that we're not defiled by the world, right, and by sin. That's not why the Holy Spirit was given, Right? The Holy Spirit is given and he comes upon us to empower and to give us the power to stand and to witness and to minister in any environment and to really thrive while we do it. Even to sit there with sinners like Jesus did so that we can help them to be reconciled back to him just like we were. Right? Paul said, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And here's the, the key. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore what? Christ's ambassador." Right, we're ambassadors. And think about an ambassador, right? We live and we serve in a foreign country, right? A foreign culture. We live and we serve on foreign soil, sometimes evil and even in hostile foreign territory. We're ambassadors who serve in a culture that's hostile towards us because it's hostile to Jesus in us. And again, I know it was just five verses, But I think that just this short section of scripture, right, we're reminded through the example of Jesus, it really forces us to really think about grace towards people in a way that we maybe don't want to be forced to think about that. Right, I think as God's teaching us, so many of us, about the issue of grace towards each other, the grace towards lost sinners, grace towards people who are still stuck in that same sin that we were stuck in before Jesus rescued us out of it. And I think a passage like this is important, right? To, to take in the privacy of your own heart, right? Just between you and the Lord, right? That's a very safe place to kind of sort these things out with God, but to simply try to put ourselves, and I mean put that deep, deep inside self that you know is there, but put yourself into this passage. And what I think we might discover, importantly, is that some of us are a little more like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus, right? In how we really view the lost and what we really think of sinners and to come to that place and to have the Spirit shine light on that in our hearts that's an important thing for you know that's an important light bulb to have go off amen and I think that's one of the great points of this passage are we really a friend of sinners the way that Jesus was a friend of sinners right of course that's what the, the Pharisees are the ones who gave him that name it was a criticism of that these very same religious leaders leveled against him. right? Luke 7 and Matthew 11, Jesus said this, he said that John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. And aren't you glad? I know I'm glad. Right? Aren't you glad that he was friend enough to get close enough to you while you were stuck in your sin? Right? They used this as a, a title of accusation and yet to us, it's an acclamation, right? I mean, it, it's an acclamation of his greatness and of his mercy and of his grace. And they thought that they were going to ruin his reputation by calling him a friend of sinners. But this, this sort of an intended insult has become this enduring tribute, right? He is our hero because of that title. And I believe that Jesus wears that title as a badge of honor. Because he knows, and of course what we need to remember, is that lost sinners are not the enemy, they are the harvest field. Just like we each were one day. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for, um, we thank you for this text, Lord. And we thank you for the sometimes astounding example of Jesus, Lord, as he does things and as he says things, Lord, that are unexpected, Lord, and the, and the deeper we look at it, Lord, the more astounding and the more amazing he becomes to us. And so we thank you for that, Lord. and We thank you for your spirit as he quickens our heart um, to these realities, Lord. And we do pray that you would help each one of us, Lord. Uh, we we want to, as David did, we want to say, search me, Lord, and know me, Lord, and lead me into into righteousness, and let me know if there's any wicked way in us, Lord. And if there are attitudes of our heart, Lord, that need to be corrected as the attitudes of the hearts of the Pharisees did, Lord, we pray that you would do that even now. Lord, we want to be a friend of sinners just as, as you were, and so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we pray for that today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.